Good morning. My name is Jason. Good morning, one and all in-towners and out-of-towners, wherever you find yourself today. And welcome to the fourth and final, I don't know what should we call it, installation or thought or conversation, the fourth and final piece of Advent this year. And it's been a long and it's been a somber journey. And I don't remember that they always are this way, but my God, we're surviving a global pandemic, right? So uh, this has been a long and somber journey. It feels good to finally get where we, we were headed. Remember as kids, the, are we there yet kind of a thing? So when you, when you set out on a four-week journey, it's good to finally get somewhere. And I suppose to be actually technically correct, we're not all the way anywhere quite yet. We're not all the way there until we're actually in the grotto. And if you don't know what that means, that just means a little cave where we think Jesus was born. We're not sure. It doesn't matter. But it probably wasn't a little wooden structure. If it was a place where animals were protected in that part of the world, it would have been a grotto. But we're not all the way anywhere, even though it's the fourth quarter, the fourth part of Advent. We're not anywhere yet until we are in the grotto with the baby and the baby's awkward yet charming hospitality team. Some interesting folks in the room, isn't there? And we'll get there on Christmas Eve Eve, and my encouragement to you is don't miss Christmas Eve Eve. They have been some of the best services, that best times together we've ever done over the years. Drive-throughs, fire stations, 10 degrees, 98 degrees. We've done them all in lots of places, but you definitely want to be here for that. <clears throat> so we'll be all the way there in the story on Christmas Eve Eve where we will gather at the, at the manger thematically in terms of story. And that will be, of course, the normalist, which is Texan for most normal. But why use two words if you can use one? That'll be the normalist thing that we will have done in a long time. So plan on it. Uh, pick that service and get here, and then we will see you there for that. That's Thursday of this coming week, if I'm not mistaken, if I can count right. All right, so let's jump into Advent 4 by reading our text. And again, it comes to us from the book of Luke, chapter 1. It's a bit of a lengthy text. A lot of this will sound familiar, I hope, but let's read it. It begins with the part of the story that we call Mary's visit to Elizabeth. Verse 39, and in those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in hill country. And I still love every time Texas is mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> Where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb. That, of course, being John the Baptist, his cousin. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and also with John the Baptist, but the Holy Spirit as well, and exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you. This must have shocked Mary. You walk up to your aunt's house and she starts yelling at you. That would be my aunt, not I'm just saying. Blessed, blessed are you among women, she says, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 43, and why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Isn't that shocking? You talk about two people who get the story. This is why we don't sing, Mary, did you know? These ladies knew exactly what's going on here. How does Elizabeth know, right? I'm just saying. Uh, how does Elizabeth know that the, her niece's baby will be the Lord of, I, it's staggering to me. Anyway, and why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leap, leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Those are all Elizabeth's words. And this next little piece picks up, and we call this the Magnificat, of course being the first word in Latin as it was recorded in Scripture after it was originally penned probably in Greek. And Mary says these words, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You might be able to say Mary has some kind of humility, but it's a different kind of humility than most of us are familiar with. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. And of course, three months is a large chunk of a pregnancy, as you know. And this was no small trip for this child bearing a child. Yeah, so this is the meat of the Christmas story. This is the stuff that I've been waiting for us to get to. Honestly, I'm not in love with John the Baptizer. He's an oddball to me. I don't love necessarily apocalyptic prophecies about the end of the world. I don't hate fig trees, and I don't dislike highways in the desert or in the hard and wild places, especially when God is the contractor of that highway. But the truth is, friends, I come to Advent with all eyes on sweet Mary and the God child. So we're getting there now. We're all the way there. If you know me at all, you know what I think about Mary. If you've ever heard me talk about Mary this time of year, I see her as the proto-disciple, meaning the preeminent voice of all of those early adopters. Mary stands alone. She's the example that I think we all should follow. In my opinion, hers is the most pristine, by far the most pure, hands down the most perfect of all human responses to the divine invitation to co-create. The simple reply that floats off her lips when confronted by the angel, her honest answer to the shocking announcement of the angels, of the, of the messenger, this it becomes for me what I consider the pinnacle, maybe the zenith or perhaps the perfect apex of human speech. I'm sure you remember her flawless response. It went something like this. Let it be unto me according to your word. Which doesn't sound all that lofty until you recall the staggering inconvenience, the astonishing impossibility of such a proposal specifically at that time in her life. And I imagine Gabriel the angel might have said something like this. Hey, God likes you. In fact, he wouldn't be altogether bothered if you obliged to let him borrow your womb, you know, to right a few wrongs in the neighborhood. That is, if you don't mind terribly, apparently Gabriel was British. <laughs> if you don't mind, comma, terribly, that's a British sentence. But of course, Mary was from Hill Country here in Austin because her response was, all right, all right, all right, she says to the angel. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. Think about this. God born inside her. Wait, what? God entrusted to her to rear and to raise. Think about that. Her womb to become, at least for 40 weeks, the tabernacle of eternity. Wow. And the wind of God, the timeless divine spirit of God, somehow would be the progenitor, not Joseph. Can we get our heads around that idea? And somehow, just like Cassie Bernal, she said yes. She said yes. Her response is unrivaled, it's unmatched, it's unequaled in sincerity and perfect simplicity. So I have a confession to make to you in two parts. Part A, Mary was never a big figure of the imagination of my childhood. She never figured prominently in the landscape of evangelical Protestant theology, especially when you were a Protestant missionary in Latin America. Mary was not that big of a deal. She was noticed, but only just. I owe my devotion to Mother Mary to my Catholic friends, which were all my friends growing up. You know this about me. I grew up in the most Marian of all countries, perhaps Mexico herself. And even though the charismatic Pentecostal church of my childhood tried to teach me to hate all things Rome and all things Catholic, they never managed to quash my profound and cultural respect for every Mexican that I loved and trusted who saw her, Mother Mary, and whatever historic apparitions we attached to her as essential to the gospel that they understood. It never killed that in me, despite its best attempts. Confession Part B, 
I see her as essential too now when you think of it and put it all into, into the right picture. It turns out I don't fence or cage very well. If I'm told not to, honestly, I'm probably gonna. So I went digging for the meaning in that story. And I end up a devoted Guadalupean Methodist, which is a bit of an odd sentence. But Mary's historically and contextually specific appearance in 1531 in the part of the world I love the most, we call her Our Lady of Guadalupe, it folded in, it included into the, to the eternal plan of God something of their identity, something of their cultural uh, trapping, something of the symbols that they could understand. And who wouldn't want to be counted into a gospel that takes on the skin of your people? So count me among her devoted. I'm sorry if that offends you. If it does... Let's go, me and you, let's get on an airplane. Let's go to Mexico City. I will take you to the epicenter of the clash of these two worlds that began in the 16th century. I'll take you to a massive cathedral that has a, a belt that conveys 10 million pilgrims a year across the face of that original painting that was revealed to Juan Diego in the tilde of a simple peasant's clothing. I'll take you there if you want to, and maybe then you and I can talk about how important is it that the gospel be impregnated inside someone of our skin color. Actually, on second thought, I guess I'm not that sorry. It's true. Mary holds a sacred space in my imagination, a place unoccupied by any other human being. And if you must know, I'm not alone. Dozens of hundreds of millions of us feel the same. Dozens of hundreds of millions. That's my favorite new word, my favorite new, favorite new number. I like it because it's all words. I don't understand numbers, but I get words. Dozens of hundreds of millions. That's my favorite, which is how Taylor and I d decide on what sports to follow. Taylor, my daughter, my, gr my great sports fan. You see, dozens of hundreds of millions of people follow football. That's football, round ball, right? That's the beautiful, we call it the beautiful sport. And about a half dozen hundred million people follow F1 cars as they spit and as they slide and slither around serpentine circuits in every nook and cranny of the globe. And as a rule of thumb, don't argue with too hard with dozens of hundreds of millions. Just go with it. Here's a letter to America. Dear America, it's unlikely everyone is wrong but you. The end. I'm just saying. Let's get back to Mary. After all, the F1 season is over. I'm going to be thinking of cricket analogies until next March. But back to Mary. It feels worth pointing out as we consider this virgin who stands at the very center of our story. It feels, it, it feels worth pointing out that nobody tends to have small feelings about Mary and her role in this story. The Greeks said that it was the uh, Helen of Troy that was the face that launched a thousand ships. Well, Mary has launched far more than a thousand ships. Big feelings, y'all. Big, big, big feelings hover around this child. And if I'm honest... My Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical missionary tradition treated her like one of the witches of Salem. They didn't understand her, so they demonized her story. So they dismissed her voice. And that's what the patriarchy will always do. It will demonize and marginalize until eventually, with the sacred text as its, as its moorings, it will torture and attempt to erase the female standouts. There's no surprise there. There was nothing of an understanding of her in my context. But whatever Rome or Mexico City or Medjugorje or Lourdes in France has made of Mother Mary, in the end, it may not be all that much more helpful or balanced than what I was presented in the sub-tribe of my cultic evangelical youth. Praying to her doesn't make a ton of sense to me. If I'm honest, calling her co-creator or co-redemptrix, as billions have, feels a bit far-fetched for me as well except I guess that we're all co-creators in our lives. And when you figure in the work of surrendering and releasing, we all uh, join eternal love in the work of redemption. So to some degree, I guess we all co-create and co-redeem, but that's not my point. Anyway, Mary tends to inspire one of two things, either contempt or worship. Not much is in between. And I suppose I understand both, which is why I'd like to propose a middle way. Consider it a road less traveled today. And today's story might, be help as, it might help us as we do just that. You see, the power, I would say, the transcendence in Mary 
was in her simple humanity. It was in her ordinariness. She was completely like us, I would argue, even though this current one, my favorite of all popes, would probably choke my face if you heard me say it. She was just like us. If we argue, you see, too strenuously for Mary's uniqueness, if we try too hard to establish something like a doctrine of immaculate conception which just preserves her innocence all throughout her life, then we end up losing her universality, her capacity to represent us all. And she is the character in our story today. So we must not do that. We have to find something to hold on to. And if we are to find ourselves in her, in her womb, in her bosom, in the warm and competent arms of a teenage body, then we must not diminish her ordinariness or her universality, I would say. She is us. We are her. That awareness stands now at the center of Advent, which is the anchor of everything we believe, friends. The whole story begins with the womb. Think about it. All stories do. Oh, I hope you're hearing me this season. I really am trying to stretch us into a new way of seeing this story. You see, one of the ongoing problems with theology is that it tends to overstate the case of human uniqueness. Theology underestimates the ordinary and often deifies or divinizes any historical standout. It lifts them simply just too far for us to reach, which is understandable, I suppose, but that doesn't make a ton of sense to me. It isn't wise and it isn't productive. There is something timeless something divine in all of us, not arguing against that, but somehow I would suggest we must avoid elevating any one of us to heights the rest of us cannot scale. You see, if you lift Mother Teresa too high, she doesn't make an impact. Whoever you lift too high on a pedestal, we can't reach them, so we must not do that. You see, ordinary is undervalued by theology, but ordinary is the secret to anything that's universally accept, uh, available. So I'm less interested in the ways that our heroines and our titans, our goddesses and our mystics, our mothers and our uncles were unique. That's less interesting to me. They carry our dreams because they could, which matters mostly because the ways that they were just like us. See, we have to preserve that. They, all people, are us. That's the only way to read the human story. We are them. This is an axiom of how the cosmos functions. Under all people, think of it this way, runs a common timeless root system that connects us all. We all We are all one, guys. You say, well, now that's an interesting way to begin a sermon for a Methodist. That's a whole bunch of talk about Mary. And if you're wondering at this point what happened to the predictable Protestant preacher of your little Methodist church on South Lamar, just hang with me. We're working through a story. Hang with me. I'm not saying anything today that I haven't been saying for weeks. I've spent four weeks of Advent stacking these bricks. I've been bringing you here since the tryptophan coma of this year's first tasteless turkey. Thanksgiving. We're on our way to another turkey, apparently. But seriously, if you're wondering what I've done with your beloved Swedish blue-eyed little blonde-curled baby Jesus in the manger, you know the manger designed by Pottery Barn, don't panic. Don't panic. We'll get there right after we consider this part of the story. You see, every story begins somewhere. Remember, Jesus was a joint project between the Spirit of God and Mary, the daughter of Anna, the niece of Elizabeth, the fiancé of a builder named Joe. That's who she was, and it was a joint project. But that's true for all babies born to us. They're all joint ventures between heaven and earth. There is, after all, no such thing as a mere human baby. I've had five, and they were all divine in their own way. Remember, this is everyone's story we're after this year. Mary is no one at all, if not all of us. And anything less is far too small a story to hold the whole human story together at this point. And even though she may be seen in time as the prime example of all of us that we all should follow, she was also intensely human. Mary was the queen of ordinary. 
Her faith was mammoth until it wavered. She was determined and resolute like only a teenage girl can be until she wasn't. She was all hell yes until she tried to tell Joe, the builder, the peculiar particulars of her pregnancy. She was us, just like us. And in that sense, she swerved and slipped. She waffled and winced. She needed to be held together. She needed to lean on sturdier souls from time to time, just like you and me. And when the days became disorienting and overwhelming, she reaches for someone she can trust, so she travels to see her aunt. I think that's the context of today's story that Luke brings us. He doesn't give us all the details we might covet. He just says she went to hide out for a, for a spell with her aunt, three months to be precise. And that at that time, you must know it was not a simple thing to travel pregnant or poor. Nevertheless, she knew she needed to collapse into the lap of her beloved aunt for structure and support, for soul scaffolding and strength. When the controversy swirled and the rumors grew wild, she wanted to hide, just like me, just like you. That's exactly what we do, dear ones. That's exactly what we do. And so our Marian work today and for this season will be about finding ourselves in her, finding ourselves as her. Oh, if we can let her be no more and no less than she was, there is room enough for all of us to see ourselves in her pristine and competent authenticity. So how might I bring home these words to you this week, these words that most of us know by heart? That was the question that bored a hole in me all week, how to make something mundane meaningful again. So having, having never seen this done in church, I thought I might try something different. I thought I might rewrite the Magnificat in my own words, and perhaps I could inspire you to do the same, to make these your words, uh, own these words in your own way as well. What I know for sure is that if we don't make them our words, then we're left with just a historical account, and it's a great one, but it's just history. That although beautiful, this account will still be frozen inside someone else's tribal story. So here we go. We can just call this Jason's Magnificat or Jason's Song of Praise. <laughs> so after a long journey, Jason collapses in the lap of someone that he trusts and he begins to sing these words in response to the miraculous invitation by love itself to join in the ongoing work of creation. Jason chapter 1 verse 46, oh, that's so scandalous, but we're just going to go with it for structure. <laughs> Might read something like this. Don't do this at home, Mark. Don't do, this is a closed track with, yeah, anyway. Jason might sing in praise, the unseen yet the realist, of course, this being Texas, we add est to anything. The unseen and realist part of me recognizes the source and storyline of life itself. Verse 47, and that timeless part of me, that eternal self, finds joy and delight in the source of love that never fails to preserve and deliver me. Verse 48, because the, sun, the source of life has faced fully without shame the low and vulnerable state that I, love's servant and loyal devotee, find myself in. 49, I dare not forget the amazing things the powerful one, the one whose name is otherworldly, has done for me personally. And in case you wonder what I'm doing, I'm working with the Greek and I'm pulling it into my own language here, okay? Verse 50, love's compassion, of course, is not just me, but for everyone who is gripped by the phobia of missing out on life itself across all times and places. In verse 51, this love, this eternal source of life makes craters with the strength of its arm alone, showing mercy to the humble while disorganizing and dispersing the haughty, the arrogant, and the proud because they are distracted with smaller narratives. Verse 52, love has toppled empires and elevated the unseen, the infirm, and the otherwise outcast like me. And Jason goes on, and all this began when love filled the hollow places in the bellies of the famished in my own belly, while at the same time love hollowed out similar places only, leaving those ones empty inside the overfed and the complacent. Verse 54, 
Love has not forgotten the deal it made with my people, my insignificant and unremarkable people, because love never forgets the long story of newness, the complete history of kindness. From the Welsh countryside across the dark sea to Newfoundland, all the way down to Buffalo, New York, came the Summerton. That's part of my family. From the black forest of Germany across the same angry sea to Cheektowaga, New York, came the Mueller's. That's the other side of my family. Simple people sustained by the long story of God's kindness. This is my song of praise to God much like Mary's. And in verse 55, it ends this way. And all of this is because promises were made to the timeless, by the timeless and eternal love of, uh, to our ancient ones, promises that began with us but in time would go on to involve everyone, everywhere. That is my song of praise. Now, I know you weren't taught to do that with Scripture. It may feel strange to you or inappropriate to plug your own story into it. But my fear is that if we don't, we run the risk of gathering around historical accounts that instead are too small compared to the truth that is capable of traveling across all time and space, all oceans and languages, all peoples and all times. Remember, Mary is us. We are her. Her words can be, therefore, a template for our own hearts to follow as they find their own voice to sing. Maybe you should take the time to rewrite Sweet Mother Mary's song of praise in your own words, as I have done. There, there's always a chance that it could help you to find the divine potential in your own suffering, in your own particular brand of sorrow. Perhaps it could help you connect all the dots of your waiting and your wanting. Maybe it could help you find the, the, the light of God in the ways that you sometimes weep when you're alone. If you find a home inside these words, inside the words of an ancient woman, perhaps you could begin to see the hope buried in the labor, in the longing, and in the lovesick ache that nearly consumes you. On the other hand, if, the, if these are just quaint lyrics from a, composed by a teenage prodigy from deep history, then you may not fully trust the ways that you've been invited to tarry and to travail. And those two words are from my mentor, Stan Mitchell. He's the only guy I know who knows old Pentecostal camp meeting words. We all tarried and we all travailed. Just look them up. They're old words. That's for you. But you may not fully understand the story of God and the process into which you're being pulled unless you can find your way into words like these. What I'm trying to say, friends, is if these are mere words as opposed to a home that we can move into, a, a home that we can unfold in, that we may never look down at our own wounds all swollen and full of promise, round and plump with with doubt and potential, we may never fully embrace the pain and the pressure that feels like it's going to kill us until it produces sweat and blood that gives birth to a brand new world. And oh my God, do we need a new world now? If we can't find our way inside it, it's just history. It won't be enough. But I have a hunch that it is. I have a hunch that it is. I wonder if you would join me on your feet in prayer. I recall this time of year bringing far more sophisticated technologies and devices to Advent in my past. I remember bringing big, big prayers and lofty ideas, and all I can bring this year is longing. All I can bring this year is yearning. All I can bring is a hollowed-out emptiness for something new. It's all I can offer, but it's all God ever needed. Let us in some way just pray that the breath of heaven would breathe on us today. You say, I'm a man, I don't have a womb. Oh my God, are you, if you're creating anything in this world, you have a womb, brother. Just open up your mind just the slightest bit to understand that we are all wrapped in this. And I don't know if your heart longs to say yes to God today, but mine just, is just begging for the breath of God to blow this direction. Bring new life where things have died and newness where things are old. Create new worlds in me. 
In your name we pray.